Please be seated. Let's pray to our God, who is Yahweh. Father, we, we love to shout your name. Father, because in your name we are given all that you are in a manner that our minds can comprehend. And Father, when we look to Jesus, we are enabled to see the Father. Lord God, as we turn to your word now and as we continue to to worship through your word, which has directed all that we have done to this point. As we have prayed and as we have sung, as we have given and worshiped, Father, we now study in worship your word. And we would ask that you would allow this word to come alive. Lord God, would you remove distraction? Lord God, would you guard error? Would you speak? so that we might see the beauty of our God. And in so seeing, God, realize that all of the concerns that we may have brought with us this morning, all of the the fears and the, the uncertainties, even the successes, Father, of this past week are nothing. No ground upon which to stand. Offering no confidence. No value. But you and you alone, O oh God, are everything. Who is like the Lord our God? Father, guide our time, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we talked about several weeks ago, if you were with us, I grew up playing a, a lot of tennis, both competitive and recreational. We had friends as a child who owned a tennis court. They build it in their backyard for their daughter, who is really good. She, she was about six years older than me, and she played on the Zimbabwean Davis Cup team. Now, for those who don't know, Davis Cup is, is somewhat like the Ryder Cup in golf. And if that doesn't help you, World Cup. We've just had a lot of World Cup stuff going on over the past months. That's soccer. But if neither of those analogies work for you, then just take my word for it. The fact that she played the Davis Cup was a big deal. It was a big deal. And as I said, I, as a child... I grew up playing, and I had all these big boy dreams of playing one day like a pro. I had heroes like Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi, Yvonne Lendl, going back further, Jimmy Connors, among others. I I drew pictures of these guys and had them on my wall. I I knew their latest tournament stats, their equipment sponsors, world rankings. I read every article I could get on these men because I dreamed one day of being and playing like these tennis superstars. And as I got older, my heroes got older, and so I discovered new players that I dreamed of being like, with one of my favorites being a Croatian left-hander, so like myself, a guy named Goran Ivanisevic. And I remember watching this man play in Wimbledon finals, the, the Wimbledon final, three different occasions, and only lost to some of my other tennis faves. But in 2001, after five sets of just grueling, back and forth battling, my man Goran finally got the win that he had been working so long to achieve. I I watched that entire match, five sets worth, and I was so pumped when he won. I felt like I'd won right along with him. And in my mind, Goron finally deserved it. He he had tried for so long. He was such a great guy. He was always smiling and 
pleasant to be around. I felt like it was time he got the win. It was a form of justice, if you will. For me, Goron was a model tennis player whom I sought to emulate. I could imitate his service action, his strokes, and his court mannerisms. I could see my wife rolling her eyes, but I'm serious. Guys, I'm not alone in this. I know all of you at some point have had a sports hero that you have sought to impersonate. You've strutted around and shot baskets like Michael Jordan or LeBron James. You know, I'm not, I know I'm not the only one. But Goron, for me, was the man. Now, sadly, I never met him, although I did have the chance to meet some of his professional colleagues. I never had the chance to meet Ivan Isovich, but a friend of mine did. Now, he too played tennis for Zimbabwe, like the lady on whose court I'd grown up playing. And in fact, he got the chance to play against Ivan Isovich and the Croatian team when they came to the Zimbabwe for Davis Cup. And I remember being so bummed that I couldn't watch because I was away at college. But afterwards, I heard all about my hero. I found out via this friend and others that uh, all I thought I knew about Ivan Isovich was quite false. You know, rather than being the hero to all, both the short and the tall, the great and the small, no, Goron was a piece of work. I mean, this guy was a total jerk. He wasn't the gentle giant that I'd always envisioned him to be. In fact, this man was a wild man with anger management issues. Following his loss in the Zimbabwean Davis Cup, he went back to the locker room and pulled shower heads out of the wall. He'd broken mirrors. He'd broken bathroom stalls. Now, you know, Goron was a powder keg just waiting to explode. And when he didn't get things just the way he wanted, he went off on whoever was close by. Now, I remember being shocked at this news. And my first reaction was what? Denial. <laughs> no way. No way, I thought. That, that's not my Goron. He'd never do that. Goron's not a moron. I've suffered through three nail-biting, heart-stopping, gut-wrenching, Wimbledon final defeats with this man, Goran Ivanisevic. He'd wept as he shook hands with the Duchess of Kent following these losses. No, the Goron that I had created in my mind was gentle. He was loving and kind. He always gave his best and was gracious in defeat. The Goron that I'd concocted was a role model. He was someone to be emulated. Surely he could not have done what I'd heard he'd done. But of course he had. And in that moment, church, I came to realize that the Goron I knew didn't exist. I'd made him up based on how I wanted him to be rather than as he truly was. And friends, we can laugh this morning at my naive stargazing, but I fear that there are many today who take this same approach to God. We create or conceive of God as we would like him to be rather than as he actually is. We, we choose to view God in ways that fit with our sensibilities and thus we envision him as, say, a, a great grandfatherly figure who sits up in heaven wherever that is and he just smiles down on all that lies below. He, he lives, exists to spoil his offspring, which is us, and thus he's loving and kind. He always turns a blind eye to our faults and failings. He would never discipline, heavens no, because that's just not what grandparents are for, right, grandparents? You know, others of us, I believe, choose to see God as a businessman. He's always ready to make a deal. If you'll scratch his back, he'll scratch your back. Whatever you need, this God lives to provide. And he'll do so, just as long as you gift him something in exchange. Friends, I fear that there are many in our world, maybe even a number in the church today, who picture God as this great Santa Claus of the sky, or a snappy-dressed businessman who's set to provide quid pro quo, or 
as a distant and disinterested deity who, while setting the ball rolling, has now sat back to watch his creation just figure it out on their own. Because that's, that's how he always intended it to be. Now, do these perceptions, or more accurately, as we'll see, I hope this morning, misperceptions sound familiar? Now, I would imagine that, that all of us know someone who's clinging to one or more of these views of God. And, and it could be that you share some of these sentiments to a degree. In fact, I believe that were we to issue an exam to members of churches across our nation regarding God's nature, His character, and His attributes, most would fail, or in the least reflect by their beliefs elements that have been officially condemned by the church over the years as heretical. Over 50 years ago, a pastor theologian remarked of our church, the church here in America, that she has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low so ennoble, I would add, unbiblical, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men and women. This she has not done deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. He went on to lament how this low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. Emmanuel, as men and women desperate to exalt God above all, we must first know God as he is distinguished from all. And this means not as we conceive him from what we see in creation, but rather as he has revealed himself in his word. And so today we're starting a new series that we're going to entitle The God of the Bible. And over the coming weeks and months, we're going to study the scriptures so that we might know God as he is, rather than as we would envision him, and as many have envisioned him to be. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the book of Exodus and chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, and I appreciate your patience with that lengthy introduction. Normally we would turn much more quickly to God's word where the authority for all that we say is derived, but I, I wanted to set the stage for us this morning uh, for what we're going to see as we study together, and I hope make the point of just how serious and how widespread is the confusion regarding God's character today, where everyone has a conception of God, just like the character that we're going to study now. So, would you follow along as I read from Exodus 3 and beginning with verse 1? Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him. From within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And we're going to pause here for just a moment and make a few comments in light of our first point, which is that Moses had a concept of God. Moses had a concept of God. And I would imagine that most all of us are familiar with the story of Moses, the prince of Egypt, as phrased by the DreamWorks 1998 blockbuster. 
Moses was born, as you know, during Israel's captivity in Egypt at a time when Pharaoh was practicing population control. Fearful of Israel's growing strength in numbers, Pharaoh ordered all the Jewish midwives to kill all the boys that were born, but to allow the girls to live. Moses' mother memorably protected him by placing him in a basket and then hiding him amongst the reeds on the river Nile. And it's there that Pharaoh's daughter discovered him. And realizing that he's a Hebrew baby, Pharaoh's daughter turned to Moses' sister, who just so happened to be standing nearby, and who quickly volunteered to help find a wet nurse for this child. And Miriam promptly finds her mother, who takes her home, her son home and raises him for pay from Pharaoh's daughter, before she later takes him to the palace where he becomes Pharaoh's son, experiencing all of the learning and leadership training that the Egyptians, the most powerful nation at that time, could offer. And after he was grown... Moses, as we know, gets caught up in an altercation between an Egyptian as well as a Hebrew, and he actually kills the Egyptian and thought he'd gotten away with it. But then when the story breaks, as they always do, he fled, left his established life of luxury behind, and he became a nomadic herder in Midian. And that's where we pick up the story. There in chapter 3, Moses has married the daughter of Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he's tending his father-in-law's flocks near Orb, which we're told there is the mountain of God, when the angel of the Lord appears to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Now, I'm not going to comment this morning on the nature of this fire, who the angel of the Lord may be, or why it occurred at Oreb, because what I believe we need to see together is Moses' response. All alone here, in the desert, Moses sees a strange sight and immediately goes over to investigate. Clearly, this man has an interest in and a concept of the supernatural as he investigates this burning bush. And then we're told he hears a voice. Who is God? Speak his name from within the bush. And Moses' response is, here I am. Further, when God orders Moses to come no closer and that he remove his sandals for the place where he's standing is holy ground, the textual implications for us are he obeyed immediately. And so, church, what I believe we see here is the evidence of Moses' concept of God, meaning he appreciates the idea of the supernatural. He appreciates the idea of something beyond that which the eye can see and the mind can explain because I don't believe there's any other explanation for his actions here than this. If Moses didn't have a concept, a category, a philosophical framework, a worldview, if you will, that accounted for bushes that burned but weren't consumed and that generated voices with which you could dialogue, then I don't believe he would have behaved as he did. Emmanuel, what I believe we see here is the fact that Moses had an appreciation for the divine, the supernatural, for God. He had an idea of what God could do and couldn't do. Because you just, if you remember, he was raised in Egypt, surrounded by the pagan practices of Pharaoh and his family. So I'm sure that Moses knew most of the names, if not all of the names of Egypt's gods. He likely had even offered sacrifices to them at some point in his upbringing. And thus, Moses had a concept of God. And friends, I believe that this form of belief so held at this point in his life is shared by every single person on this planet in the sense that we all have a concept of God. Now we use different names for this deity for sure. And in some cases, in light of the secular age in which we live, that deity isn't supernatural as much as it is intellectual as we see humanity as ultimate. 
in all of our life, but I believe that we all have a concept of God, and we evidence this, as did Moses, by our actions. That which we worship, that which we show deference to and reverence for, is our God. And thus, I believe that Moses had a concept of God, and that Moses had heard of this God. You look back with me to Exodus in there, verse 3, I mean, verse 6, rather, of chapter 3, and it reads, Then he said, so that's God, that's the voice coming from the bush. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. That's a striking response, isn't it? God identifies himself uniquely as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, so not the God of Pharaoh, Moses' adopted father, who is his, his is his true father here. It's a clear reference to his true father that the scriptures tell us was a Levite, and so a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the moment that Moses hears this, he doesn't ask, who's that? He, he doesn't respond, pardon? Should I know this guy, Abraham, Isaac, and James, was it? No. Moses' immediate response here is to hide his face. Because he's afraid to look at God. Now, it would be easy for us, tempting even, to anachronistically read this action as one of obedience. Because if we're familiar with the scriptures, then we know that later, God declares, no one may see my face and what? Live. Absolutely. But this statement, while it was given to Moses, on the same mountain, no less, was given in Exodus 33. So that's some 30 chapters and many years later in the life of Moses and the people of Israel. Additionally, prior to Moses' act of hiding his face, there is no scriptural record of God commanding such a response of those in his presence. And so church, what I believe we see here is the fact that Moses recognized the deity with whom he was dialoguing. He'd heard of this God, the God of his father, and it's likely that he'd heard the stories shared with him of God's provision of how he had called Abram from the land in which he was at first, Ur, to a land that he promised to reveal, how God had made a covenant with Abram, changed his name to Abraham, and then promised to bless all nations through him, how God had provided Abraham later with the son, Isaac, spared Isaac on Mount Moriah, then later how God provided for Isaac's son, Jacob, and established he and his descendants in Egypt. Now, I believe that Moses recognized God's references, and coupled with what he knew and likely had experience of the religions in Egypt, he quickly looks away in fear. And friends, I, I would imagine that this is the nature of many of our compatriots' knowledge of God. They've heard of God, specifically the God who has a son named Jesus. They've heard of his love, how he blesses and desires to save. They've heard of God's grace and, and how he looks after the weak and the small and those who work hard. And thus, if you were to ask people today if they had heard of the Judeo-Christian God of the Bible, I would imagine they'd likely say yes. And they'd even demonstrate deference to this God by crossing themselves as they run onto the field for a football game or pointing to the sky after they hit a home run and they round the bases at a baseball game or ending a, the reception of a, an award at a music festival with the words, God bless you, or at the end of a political speech at a rally. God bless you. Now, I believe that there are many 
in our culture that, like Moses at this point in his life, have a concept of God that is tied to their nation's unique faith heritage. And thus, they've heard of this God specific. The sad reality is, Moses didn't know God. At this stage in our story, Moses didn't know God. And I'd like us to see this together. So, would you look back with me there to chapter 3, verse 7 this time? In verse 7, we read the Lord speaking, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Emmanuel, verses 7 through 10 here. God informs Moses of his plan to save his people and provide them with a land all their own. And that he, so that's Moses, will be the point man. And Moses quickly reveals that he has no idea who it is that he's talking to. As he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Moses recognized that he was nothing. He, he wasn't special. He wasn't confident. He wasn't convincing. And therefore, God needed someone more capable because God, God, what God needed him to do was more than he could manage. Clearly, Moses believed that God's agent, who, whoever that agent would be, would be capable of pulling off all that God asked for. Moses, for Moses, his God at this point called the qualified because he needed their help in order to accomplish his plans. Now, friends, how many of us this morning view God in this same way today? Now, we hear God's word calling us to abandon everything and to follow Jesus, and we hesitate because if we have nothing, then we can't help God help others, can we? And he can't possibly take care of all our needs, or we read God's promise to watch over us and to never leave or forsake us, and yet we worry constantly, desperately making plans to take care of ourselves. Or we read of God's love in the gospel and how, how we could never save ourselves or pay God back for his grace gift of salvation, and yet we think there's no way that could be. Surely I have to be good, and, and that God then will help me. Surely my salvation comes about as God works with me. And, and then as I obey, I merit God's grace. But friends, such, I believe that such sentiments reflect Moses' response, which revealed he had no idea who he was speaking to. He, he even goes so far as to state this as fact. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Moses comes right out and he says, 
What's your name? You know, as one who had grown up amidst the polytheism of Egypt, where every god or goddess had a name, Moses, he just comes out and states his confusion. He doesn't know this god. He knows of God and of this god, of his father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he has no idea who he really is. Do you know this god? Or do you simply know about him? And there's a difference. There's a difference. I thought I knew Goran Ivanisevich. But as it turned out, I only knew about him. I knew what racket he played with, shoes he wore, tournaments he'd won, his age, his country of birth. We could go on, but the point is I knew a lot about Goran. But I certainly, most certainly did not know Goran. And church, I believe that here in our text, Moses reveals his ignorance, at which point God introduces himself. Look back at verse 14 there. This is where God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. God said to Moses, I am who I am. You notice, first of all, how in this introduction, God doesn't direct Moses' attention to creation. He doesn't point out what he has made and then invite Moses to draw conclusions from what he can see or hear, taste, or touch. God doesn't encourage Moses to imagine what he might be like or compare himself to something that Moses already knows. Rather, God reveals himself by declaring he just is. I am who I am. God doesn't even begin to answer Moses' question yet. But rather, as, as one pastor theologian declared, he said in effect, before you worry about my name, and so where I line up with the many gods of Egypt or Babylon or Philistia, and before you worry about conjuring me with my name, and even before you wonder if I am the God of Abraham, be stunned by this, church. I am who I am. I absolutely am. Before you get my name, get my being, that I am who I am, that I absolutely am, is first foundational and of infinite importance. God begins by establishing his being. And then he connects his being with his name as he declares, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, at this stage, Moses still doesn't know God's name, does he? But he knows that it reflects his being. His very existence, which is eternal, has never begun, nor will ever end. God is. And then God says, say to the Israelites, the Lord. And that word in the Old Testament is Yahweh. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Finally, God reveals his name to Moses. And this is a name that occurs over 4,000 times in our Old Testament and that declares every time we read it, God's eternal existence, his holy otherness from everything else because he is. Now, we can't say this of ourselves, that we are, because there was a time when we all weren't, and there will come a time when we will not be. And this is an existential reality that faces all of creation, but not God. 
because he is. In revealing himself in this way, God set himself apart from every other deity ever conceived. For there's, there's no other God, that's little g, no other God of whom it could be said, I am. The gods of Egypt had, had been invented, as were the other gods of Babylon or Philistia, and while they were worshipped feverishly for a time, those gods now lie as relics of antiquity that are housed where? Museums. They died along with all of those who revered them. But not our God, friends. He is. Do you know Him? And more importantly, do you know Him as He has revealed Himself to be? As that which alone has absolute existence. It would be absolute foolishness to try and turn to creation to determine God's nature, or His character or attributes. For while there may be things that reflect aspects of God's being, they are not the same. Were we to turn to creation, the closest that we could come to knowing God would be by defining God as we attempted to do so with our little kids through comparison. So we could know he's not a werewolf, right? But can you actually know anybody by comparing them to something or someone that they in fact aren't like in the first place anyways? Have you ever tried to introduce someone to someone that you can't describe? It's impossible. And friends, I pray that we all know the God of the Bible, Yahweh, as He has revealed Himself to us. For in the Scriptures, we have the record of God's self-revelation. Further, we have God's very own promise that while He spoke to men and women in the past who were separated from Him by the gulf of sin, where none could look on God and live, for such was His holiness. His glory contrasted by their broken humanity. He bridged that gap in the person of His Son, who is Jesus. And thus, as we today study God's Word, we are led to see and know God in a way that no one in Moses' day ever could. For when we look to Jesus, we see the Father. In the coming of God the Son, Jesus Christ, the infinite abyss separating sinful creation from holy Creator was crossed. So that whoever believes in Jesus may know God, may see God as he is, always has been, and always will be. In the pages of our Bible, church, God graciously opens our eyes to, by the power of his spirit, to know him through the person of his son. May we not accept conceptions of God which do not reflect the truth of God's word. Otherwise, in the end, friends, we're going to find out as I did with Goran Ivanisevich, that the God we believe in doesn't exist. And the consequences of that deception are eternal damnation. Do you know the God of the Bible? Would you pray with me as we close? Father God, you have revealed yourself that we might know you in your word. May we be men and women who know this word. For it is in this word, by this word only, as your spirit brings life that we are enabled to know you as you are. Lord, it is hard. It is challenging growing up in a community, in a nation where there are many ideas about God that sound biblical even and that feel right to our sensibilities. Father, might we examine them, test all of them against your word. For it is only in your word that we come to know you. 
that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus. Father, it is only by and through relationship with Jesus Christ that we can know you. And so, Father, I pray now that if there is anyone who has only known about you to this moment, but having heard your gospel, that you have sent one, your son, like us in every way, who died on a cross to pay the punishment, the, the penalty that our sins had incurred so that we can know you. Father, would you graciously bring life today, the life that you are. Might you bring into union with Jesus any that you desire for your glory. Father, might we as your church be known as men and women of your word and test everything that we believe to be true about you against your word so that we might know you. Thank you, God, for not leaving us without direction, without a guide, your Holy Spirit that lives within us and is a deposit guaranteeing that inheritance of ours into eternal life. Father, thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.